This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone online. We have a very full house. Buddha's house is rocking today. <laughs> and I want to thank everybody who has joined the retreat and also who's come today to sit and to hear some words. It's, very, it's always kind of a good problem to have when you run out of seats. So thank you, and thank you all for your patience with the crowded conditions. We are constructing a Buddha field here. So my talk today is on the five remembrances. It's an early teaching of the Buddha. And I decided to give this talk because late last week, I think it was, not the one that just passed, but the week before that, I had a conversation with a former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. And I first met this person about 20 years, 20 years ago when I was at the city center in, in San Francisco for a summer intensive practice period. And we just connected, um, this teacher and I, and I've always completely trusted her, and she has always completely met me, you know, just where I was as I was. And since it's been now almost 20 years, our relationship has changed over the years. You know, we're on a different footing than when I first came as a fairly new student and I was all, you know, and now I'm sitting here in a brown robe trying to offer something. So we're kind of, she's still a mentor to me, but we're also friends. She's very wise and she's very compassionate. And we were talking about various things happening here and there and everywhere. This is before the big earthquake in the Middle East that has destroyed so many lives and causing so much suffering. There's always something, right, going on everywhere. And she said to me, that she often thought that we could all benefit from constantly keeping before us the five remembrances. And I had a moment, I thought, the five remembrances, can I remember what the five remembrances are? <laughs> I did manage to recall them. There are a lot of lists in Buddhism, five, six, 16, 108, you know, that's lots of lists. Anyway, after this conversation, I thought that this was a really good point, that I should give my talk today about these five principles. Sometimes it's translated as things to contemplate or truths even of Buddhist teaching. And they're laid out in the Upajatana Sutta, which in English is sometimes translated as the Sutta or Sutra, right, the, the text on subjects for contemplation. So things to keep in mind. And this is in the canon of Buddhist teachings in the collection that's called the Diga Nikaya. And these five remembrances are also referenced in other sutras that these are all the earliest suttas are the direct teachings from the Buddha, right? They're attributed at least to the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, who is there at the, on the altar. So here they are. The first one is, I am of the nature to grow old. 
there is no way to escape growing old. The second one is, I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. The third one is, I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. The fourth one is, all that is dear to me and everyone that I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And the fifth one is, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. And so when I remembered these myself, after talking to my friend and teacher, I remembered a moment from my own past, and (laughs) this is quite some years ago now too, a priest in my home sangha in North Carolina where I used to live and practice, she mentioned the fourth remembrance during a weekly meeting of us priests. There were several of us who were priests in this temple. So the fourth one is, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change, and there is no way to escape being separated from them. And our teacher turned to her and she said, gee, Mo, thanks a lot, right? <laughs> reminding us of this unpleasant truth. And we all laughed. And, you know, it wasn't that she didn't agree. It was just that, you know, her response broke through the kind of grimness of these fundamental pointers for us, kind of lighten things up. But we also knew, of course, that these five subjects of contemplation are true, right? Do they feel true to you? Because we're all mortal. And we all see change around us all the time, in ourselves, in others, and in all things. So these five practices or truths are basic guideposts of Buddhist teaching for us. You know, like the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which are the first teachings of the Buddha. The perfections of practice. There are also the three marks of existence that you may have heard of. Those are dissatisfaction or suffering, impermanence, which is what we're really talking about, and no self, no independent unchanging, permanent self, right? Those are the three marks of existence. Now, these five remembrances, they're not so much discussed in Zen, right? Although they're implied in everything that Zen teaches, because our basic teaching is of impermanence, right? And our founding teacher, the Japanese priest Dogen, who lived in the 13th century of the Common Era, his great insight was that actually impermanence is what he called Buddha nature. And I'll I'll come back to what that Buddha nature might mean in a minute. So we might joke about these five remembrances as my teacher did to kind of relieve the fear and dismay that can arise. But actually these are teachings of liberation, profound liberation, and we can find joy in them if we can practice with them skillfully. And the Buddha, actually, he, he recommended these to everyone, and he made a point of that. 
he said that they should be reflected upon by women and men, by people who were ordained as monks, and also by people living just everyday lives as householders. And in this way, you know, aspects of the Eightfold Path that we practice with, that all Buddhists practice with, are upheld, especially right understanding, right effort, and right conduct. And there's a Zen teacher in Nova Scotia whom I really like. His name is Cohen Franz. And he suggests that these five uh, remembrances or phrases are intended to be memorized and recited, right? And they can function somewhat like gathas. I don't know if some of you are familiar with those, but they're little short sayings that keep you mindful of what it is that you're doing in a given moment. So, for example, you know, as I light this incense, may I be reminded of impermanence, something like that, right? To just keep you grounded in your action and its greater meaning. We can say these things when we wake up or we go to sleep. There are different kind of cues that you can use to say, oh yeah, it's time to recite the five remembrances. And this practice, this notion of memorizing them and saying them, you know, arose in the Buddha's time and place where literacy you know, was not necessarily widespread. Not everybody could read and write and, you know, go and look them up on Wikipedia, <laughs> right? You had to know them. So memorization was the usual way to recall something, right? Not writing or, or reading. And it is recommended in the sutras that we apply these phrases not just to ourselves. So this isn't just about me, right, remembering these things, but to others, by reflecting not just on our own personal situation, but that others are just like us. So Cohen says, you can say to yourself, I'm not the only one who is sure to become old. Right? Everybody is going to become old, if you're lucky to live long enough. Right? And as it says in the suttas, wherever beings come and go, which is the way of all things, Wherever they pass away and re-arise, they are all subject to old age, and so on. All of the conditions that are in these uh, five facts. Cohen actually suggests a simple wording, as perhaps you contemplate your aging parents, or someone who is ill that you're visiting, or your children, if you have them or your younger brothers and sisters, members of your family or your friends, anyone, in other words, that you encounter. You can say, you, to yourself. Don't say it to them, they might not like it. (laughs) You are of the nature to grow old. You are of the nature to die. You are going to suffer separation and loss. Right? Widen the circle of regard to include, first, those closest to you, and then continue to widen it to everyone. Another sutta points out that the first three remembrances, right, so I'll, re- I'll say them again. I am of the nature of grow- to grow old. I am of the nature to have ill health. I am of the nature to die. Those first three are kind of like recapitulations of the three insights that put Buddha on the path to his enlightenment. Right? You may remember the story he is a prince, actually, 
the son of a king, and his father keeps him from seeing all unpleasant things, keeps him in the palace, keeps him distracted and entertained, because there's a prophecy that he's either going to be a great king or he's going to be a great religious leader, and his father prefers that he is a great king. So he tries to hide the truth of life from him. But the future Buddha is curious, and he sneaks out of the palace. And he sees three things. He sees an old person, he sees a sick person, and he sees a dead person. He also sees a monk, which is his inspiration for leaving the palace. But the three people he's never encountered, according to the story, age, sickness, or death. And he's shocked. He's totally shocked. And he asks his, com- his companion, what, who are, what is this? And he says, oh, that's a sick person. That's an old person. That's a dead person. So these three things caused Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, to leave his royal cocoon and try to understand the truth of existence. Right? So these remembrances include, they kind of recall Shakyamuni's uh, insights. And in his first sermon, after he woke up, after he became enlightened to the truth of existence, finally, he says in this first sermon, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering. Association with the unpleasant is suffering. Dissociation from what is pleasant is suffering. Not to receive what one desires is suffering. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> right? We don't like getting things we don't want, and we don't like not getting what we do want. So he widens the circle of suffering for us. So these observations occur throughout these teachings, his teachings. And we can see the centrality of these original, somewhat grim insights to the teachings of our great teacher. And the three persons that the Buddha saw are sometimes compared to divine messengers. And these divine messengers have their own sutra. There's a sutta called the Deva Dutta Sutta. And Deva Dutta, Deva means divine. Dutta is messenger. So this is the teaching of divine messengers. And the story that goes with this is that when a person dies, they come before the king of death for judgment. The king of death called Yama. And he asks the deceased whether they know and understand the messengers. And here are the messengers according to this sutta. The first one is a newborn person, a newborn child, a defenseless infant. The second is a really old person, somebody who's really bent over, you know, toothless person. The third is a suffering ill person, someone severely ill. The fourth, so those are like the ones that we've just been talking about. The fourth is a criminal who has been punished for his crimes. And the fifth is a dead person. So the second, third, and fifth we now are familiar with, right? the conditions of being a mortal, impermanent person. The infant, the first one in this sutta, represents returning over and over on the wheel of becoming. It it points to rebirth. Uh, We're constantly coming back for more experience because we always want something else, right? 
we spin the wheel of samsara, and we all share this. But an infant also represents a precious opportunity of a human life, which we are taught is rare to be born into. Right? It's rare to be a human being. It's not to be disregarded. Right? We are full of potential. We have choices that we can make. Now, the punished criminal is a little dreadful, right? But this refers to our karma, and it's the fifth of the five remembrances. Right? So I'll say that again, the ones that I started out with, right? My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions, and my actions are the ground upon which I stand, right? So in this teaching, the criminal is us, those of us who disregard the laws of cause and effect, right? Consequences are neither in and of themselves good or bad, right? It's just this implacable law that our intentional actions of body, speech, and mind have effects, right? We can all see this, even if we don't like to confront the consequences. And in various places, the Buddha is quite clear <laughs> that there's a direct relationship between deliberate acts like killing, right, and one's fated rebirth. For example, he says, if you kill someone and you cut their life short, you will have a short life yourself the next time around, right? And whatever form you take, you will have a short life. And this feels to me like an expression of the understanding of cause and effect that's based in the society of Buddha's time and place, right? Very kind of direct consequences of deliberate action. And I want to tell you that in Zen, we don't draw such a straight line as that, right? So people say, am I going to come back as a cockroach because I crushed that cockroach with malice? I intentionally stomped that cockroach. Does that mean I'm going to be a cockroach in a future life? We don't teach that, okay? You'd be glad to know, right? We understand that the consequences of one's deliberate actions of body, speech, and mind, so this is not just what we do, but it's what we say, and it's even what we think, right? When we nurture certain kinds of negative thoughts, they have consequences, right? These consequences are not isolated, and they're not a personal possession, because the fundamental teaching is, of impermanence, is we don't have a permanent abiding self, right? So how can we own individually the consequences of our action? They have, they have wide-ranging effects. I've sometimes used the image of billiard balls, right? Your, the effects of your karma or somebody on the other side of the world have effects all over the place and throughout space and time. So what this is pointing to is to be careful with what we say and do and think we individually may not experience the consequences of action as positive, right, or negative. Lots of times people say, I'm a good person, I've done the right things, why is my life so bad, right? We think that we should be rewarded for our good deeds and other people should be punished for their bad deeds, but it's much more complicated than that, right? It isn't some kind of reliable justice. Right? And I like the way Cohen France talks about this, so I'm going to quote him a little bit. He says, within my tradition, Zen, we can understand this to a certain degree as practice verification. 
This is Dogen's central teaching that, this is important, the meaning of what we do is expressed complete in what we do. Right? There's no separating the meaning of what we do from what we do. Kind of like what you see is what you get. He says, what we do is the important thing. He continues, my life is being expressed 100% right now. This is what my life, and your life, <laughs> looks like right now. There's actually no back story. There's no other thing that you don't see. And it's equally true for you wherever you are, whichever part of the world you're in. However you're sitting, however you're breathing, that's you. Not just some version of you, but the complete you. It's the culmination of your life. Right, so this is how we can be both the baby and the old person, the sick person and the well person, right? the youthful person and the dead person. It's all included, and we express ourselves fully in each moment. So I want to turn now to how Zen, in our Zen, Mahayana tradition, which is a, an unfolding of the Dharma in the 2,500 years since the Buddha, how we can practice with these five facts right, and with karma. And so the response is not just fear of punishment for our bad deeds or hope of reward for our good deeds. And it's not counting ourselves lucky. Right? Sometimes people say, count your blessings, right? You're not that person. Count your blessings that you're not living in an earthquake zone. Count your blessings that whatever, right? You hear this all the time. How fortunate I am. But that does not arouse compassion, which is a major feature of our practice. Compassion accompanies true wisdom. Seeing the truth of impermanence and not just saying, yeah, this is it, these laws, these implacable laws of impermanence, right? It is exchanging self, the suffering one, for other, who is also suffering, right? To see yourself in all things and in all people. And again, Cohen, I think, expresses this well. He says, we are all going to lose what we have, if we ever had it. We never really had it. Right? We think, oh, I'm losing something, but it's never really something that we can expect to hold on to. We are all of this nature. And then he says, some of my most grounded and simple moments in relationship to this practice of Zen Buddhism have taken place in settings like subway stations or train platforms, moments of being crowded in by hundreds or even thousands of people and looking out at so many faces, more than you can process, and then thinking, oh, we're all like this. Everything that is true to me about this practice of waking up to impermanence, it's also true for them. He says, it changes the room. It changes the air. Not because something good happened, like, oh, I recognize this fact about everybody, it's true about everybody, but because that's my one brief, honest look at where I am. But I would add to what he says that such a practice and such an insight, if you have a moment like that of really seeing others as not separate from you, is 
a kind of purification of karma. And by purification, I don't mean getting rid of something. I mean experiencing the true unity of all things. Right? Purity is just another word for non-duality, for not experiencing separation, from being completely at ease with what's happening. So purification in the sense that it closes the gap between ourselves and others. And it's an antidote to attachment and to delusion. The experience of realizing that we're all on the same subway platform and we're waiting for the same train can arouse profound compassion. You cannot hide from your own condition, which is impermanent, fleeting, and totally interdependent with everything else. Right? You have no independent self, and so you, whether you know it or not, rely on everything in the universe to support you, and you support everything else in the universe. You can address the suffering that has opened what is sometimes called the wound of separation, the fear that separation brings. There is actually no way ever to be separate from anything including the stuff that we find unpleasant or terrifying or unbearable. And I want to quote some words from our founder of this lineage that, that we are in, Suzuki Roshi, who began the San Francisco Zen Center, our founding teacher in this country, which I think are relevant. And they're from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is the first book published of his talks, which I recommend to everybody. And if you've already read it, read it again. This extract is from his chapter titled Transiency, which is another word for impermanence, change. So this is Suzuki Roshi, probably a lecture in the 1960s. He says, the basic teaching of Buddhism is the teaching of transiency or change. That everything changes is the basic truth for each existence, each of us and everything else. No one can deny this truth, and all the teaching of Buddhism is condensed within it. Right? So if you've got transiency, you've got all of Buddhism. This is the teaching for all of us, he says. Wherever we go, this teaching is true. This teaching is also understood as the teaching of selflessness, because each existence is in constant change, there is no abiding self, right? by which he means no self that doesn't change, nothing that's permanent. He says, in fact, the self-nature of each existence is nothing but change itself, the self-nature of all existence. There is no special, separate self-nature for each existence. And he says, this is also called the teaching of nirvana, when we realize the everlasting truth of everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. So I want to pause and say this selflessness is what is sometimes called our true nature, our original nature, totally interpenetrating reality with no separation. He goes on. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure, or any composure. <laughs> he says, but unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. 
So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth. The teaching of the cause of suffering and the teaching that everything changes are thus two sides of one coin. But subjectively, transiency is the cause of our suffering. Objectively, this teaching is simply the basic truth that everything changes. Dogen said, teaching which does not sound as if it is forcing something on you is not true teaching. (laughs) So Suzuki Roshi says, yeah, the teaching itself is true and in itself does not force anything upon us, but because of our human tendency, we receive the teaching as if something were being forced on us. But whether we feel good or bad about it, this truth exists. So in this section, this short talk, Suzuki Roshi is summarizing all of Soto Zen, Dogen Zenji's basic teaching that impermanence, or what he calls transiency, is Buddha nature, our true self, the self that is all things, that is one body, that is no abiding permanent self, no independent self. And we also sometimes call this big mind, right? That includes everything. The teacher, Tara Brach, offers what she calls the four remembrances. And this is kind of like the the positive expression of the five remembrances. So these four practices, which are a little gentler to hear and accept. They're kind of a variation on this basic teaching. So she says, when we attune to the reality of impermanence and death, we remember what most matters to us. But in daily life, we can lose precious swaths of time in a reactive trance, on our way somewhere else, and lost in problem-solving, judgment, and worry. And I would emphasize that we turn away in fear and aversion. We don't just wander in a trance, but we actually run, right? So here are her four practices or remembrances. The first one is to pause, to settle. The second is to say yes to whatever's happening. Say yes to life with everything that's included in life. The third is turn towards love or we could say compassion. And the fourth is, again, to pause and rest in awareness, right? Basic awareness, which we try to cultivate when we're sitting meditation. And these four help us awaken from trance, she says, and live true to the loving presence that is our essence. This is what we are trying to cultivate in our practice. So these practices are like the flip side of samsara. They point us to nirvana, which is nowhere other than here and now, right? The liberation that is the core of Buddha's teaching. It's not somewhere else. So I suggest, if you have the stomach, go home after you leave here today and write down the five remembrances and you can look them up. You'll Google it and they'll come up. Put them somewhere that you'll have to see them, like a bathroom mirror or maybe the fridge, whatever you see all the time. 
you might have to move them around because if you're like me, you stop seeing things that are magneted onto the fridge. Um, you could put them on the inside of the door leading out of your house, right? At eye level. Say them to yourself when you see them. Hold them lightly, though. Right? They're just the truth. It's the truth that's intended to help us be here now with everything. The truth is, nirvana is right here and nowhere else. Thank you very much. So we have some time for questions or comments. And there are a lot of new people. How many people outside are new, 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 like never been here before? Uh, several folks. Okay. And I know there's some new, newer people in the retreat. So if you don't have a question about the talk and want to ask about something else, that's also okay. And also online. Question outside? Hi, Vishan. You want to come up so everybody can hear you? So, yeah. Uh, uh, so, when you are talking about compassion, like you are expressing your love or loving kindness to others while at the same time exper experiencing by yourself. I was thinking of race, race question and the institutionalized inequalities around the lines of race, caste in India for that matter. So how would someone who is oppressed should practice compassion for others who is by location or by virtue of their color also occupies the position like position of privilege? So for that matter I was thinking of how a colored person or black person should practice compassion for white person because there's too much agitation going around, so much violence is happening. So in such situations, how does one, one should practice a compassion? I don't know if you could all hear the question. Could you hear it? The question is basically, in situations of oppression, institutionalized oppression, how should a person who is oppressed by virtue of who they are appearing to be, how should they practice compassion for those who oppress them or hate them or do violence to them? Right? And this is all the identities that we have, all the things that we are. Right? So it's gender, it's sex, it's color, it's national origin, it's everything. Right? This is a very difficult practice. So to practice Buddhism, we start with ourselves. We start with accepting and loving ourselves. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word love because there's such a freight of sentiment attached to it. And it means so many things in the West, at least. Romantic love, right? The love that's attachment and can be suffering. This is not that kind of love, right? It's to fully embrace yourself as a human being just as you are not lesser than anybody and not better than anybody right? despite your situation, whatever your situation is and then we are asked we are taught to extend that to everyone else including our enemies 
right? How do we do that? And one way I do it <laughs> is to say, this person is suffering. Their hatred is suffering, and it's delusion, right? It's total delusion, these categories that we make up that distinguish us from each other, right? Everyone is you, and you are everyone. The people who oppress some of us don't see us as human, don't see us as like them, and they're suffering. They're maintaining those boundaries because they think it will make them safe. They think there's safety in those boundaries. They'll hold on to what they have, right? their position, their privilege, but it's not the truth. And so the other thing about our vows is that we say lifetime after lifetime, right? we vow to practice. And this practice goes on and on goes on and on, and we shift things a little bit, maybe. Right? If, you, if you show a person who hates you compassion, maybe, just maybe it'll shift them. Thank you. So, uh, what I liked about the five remembrances uh, is that it led to something contradictory in my mind. If you act out of fear of the five hindrances, you cling on to life. And when you cling on to life, you sort of stop living. Um, so that wasn't a question. But that was it. <laughs> yeah, the other thing is you can keep living thinking it's always going to be, like the party's never going to end, right? And then suddenly something happens. You lose your job. You have a stroke. You wake up and you're like, I'm 95, right? <laughs> There's so much I wanted to do, right? I guess I'm never going to be a champion surfer. My, one of my friends used to say, you know, I guess I can give up the idea I'm going to be a concert pianist. And in some ways, that's, you know, it's like sometimes you feel like everything's closing in, right? I don't have all the possibilities that I used to have because I'm not as young as I was or I got injured or whatever happened, right? This was not, what was, this was not the great life I was going to have. You still have a great life, right? You're alive, and you have this precious human life, this opportunity. So don't give up on it. Yeah. And when it's time to let go, this is the other thing, Buddhism sort of prepares you to die. And, and there's some very specific practices about that. But I think the basic one is, remember that it, the party does end, and you don't know when or how, right? So to just live fully every day, every moment, that's what we're doing and cultivating also in meditation is, I'm here. And you have a limitless, as a human being, you, you know, it's like we, we see all the terrible things that we do to each other, to the planet, right? The ways in which we fail. But we have choices. So it doesn't have to be like that. You can respond fully to everything that arises. And if you just do it in your own life, you know, like, what a wonderful world. You don't have to solve all the world's problems, but you can start where you are. Thank you. Yes, hi. Hi, thank you for your talk. My name is Jenny, and Hi, Jenny. Um, 
I, um, I'm in a program right now that's anchored in Zen, and it's all about contemplative care. So mm. how do we care for one another um, with compassion? So my question is, one of the things I've been struggling with is how do we recognize and accept these remembrances and our finitude and reality of loss and also recognize grief and, the, mm. and just the truth and the reality that loss is real and yeah. then we feel it. And so, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. sort of how do we do both? And I'm just interested in, in what you might say. Thank you. It's an excellent question, and you know, I want to say so. Grief is real, and trauma is real, right? I'm not trying to like just wish away anybody's trauma. Grief is a form of trauma too, although we all experience it. We don't all experience the same traumas, but we all experience that one. So there's a story about a Zen master, and uh, some I don't remember his name, or I'm not even sure we know his name, from like the Tang Dynasty of China, right? These ancient stories. They're always about you know, some pivotal moment between two practitioners or a student and a teacher. And he's supposed to be a really advanced master, right? Imperturbable, totally serene, and also compassionate. And his favorite student dies. That question always arises, like, you have a favorite student? What? <laughs> right there, that doesn't seem very skillful. But anyway, he had a favorite student, because he's a human being, right? He has a favorite student, and the student dies. And the funeral comes around, and he's crying. He's crying. Right? And the other students are, like, shocked. He's supposed to be beyond suffering. And they say, Master, what's with the tears? You know? And he says, well, when else should I cry? Right? He just emphasizes, I'm a human being, and I am subject to these things, to loss. And I allow myself to fully feel what I'm feeling. Cutting yourself off from negative feelings, bypassing them, especially using practice to bypass them, is not healthy, right? So when it's time to cry, just cry. That too is impermanent, right? The suffering comes when we hold on to grief and it consumes us, or we feed it. We're nothing but grief. And I know people like this. They never get over some loss, right? And I don't, by getting over, I don't mean get rid of, but they are not able to integrated into their lives as something that happened and just something that happened. That is, doesn't mean that it didn't happen and it didn't have an impact. And it will come back, by the way. Grief does that, right? You know, I, I sometimes find myself, when I hear about someone else's loss, grieving for my own past losses or the ones that are coming. My mother right now is dying. She's 95. You know, and the I take joy in the fact that I had my mother all these years. You know, and she's going to bring up every other loss that I've suffered. I go to a funeral and I cry. Anybody's funeral, because we're human. We're human. It's part of what it is to be human. So to be to maintain one's composure is not to not feel anything. It's not to become a rock. Right. But it's to recognize that we are all in this together. Of course we're going to cry. And we're going to cry with other people. Does that help? Yes. Thank you. Drew? It's interesting. I feel like I've 
been feeling recently kind of the joyful side of impermanence. It's like, oh my gosh, like I don't have to try hard to have half my life set up in some certain way to, to rely on it because it's going to, it will certainly, that will certainly fade away no matter what I do. It's like, yeah, that does feel kind of happy to not have to make that effort. Yeah, all my beautiful plans, they're melting. <laughs> yeah, so, it, you know, it's like, yeah, disappointment, right? Sometimes it's really big disappointment, but also you can go outside and it's sunny and, or it's raining, you know? It's still, you're alive, it's still life, you know? It may not be what you thought it was gonna be or what you wanted. And yeah, Suzuki Roshi also said near the end of his life when he was finally diagnosed with what he, he had, they thought he had uh, maybe, you know, something like, you know, pancreatitis or something, but he ended up, it was a terminal diagnosis of cancer. And he actually said to one of his closest students, because he was joyful, he maintained some joyfulness and buoyancy, and he, like, how do you do that? And he said, things teach best when they're dying. Right? Which is a way of saying, they remind you of, this is the truth, right? Things change. Things change. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for your talk. I'm sorry if you can repeat the four positive spin-offs. <laughs> yeah. Because I remember doing it then. Like. So this is Tara Brock. Um, <laughs> and I want to make sure I get it right, so... So the four are to first pause, right? So something when something hits you, pause, right? That's a way of interrupting the usual reactivity, right? Where we go, I hate this, I hate you, <laughs> I don't like this, right? Okay, pause, and then say yes. Yes to life, just as it is, right? This is what's happening, can't, can't get around it. The third is turning to love or compassion. And the fourth is rest in that awareness, that that is your fundamental nature, is compassion. So not that things aren't difficult, not that grief and trauma don't happen, but they happen to everyone. We all have the same challenges. And if we can really believe that and really act from that place, you know, lots of other things don't matter so much. Even the people that hate you, they're going to die. Just think of that. They're going to die. <laughs> Katagiri Roshi, one of the teachers in our lineage, actually did that. There was a fundraiser for the Minnesota Zen Center, and there were all these fancy people and fancy food, you know, and he came down from upstairs, and he said, I just want you all to know that you're going to die. <laughs> he really did that. I don't know how much they raised that particular day. <laughs> Let's chant the after lecture chant. Thank you very much. <laughs>